Welcome to the Gathering Church's audio sermon. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is the Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. Well, as we trace the heart of God through this rich portion of Scripture, we get exposed to some life-changing, life-altering truth about the death of Jesus and the cross of Christ. We learn that the death of Jesus actually leads to life, abundant life for us. First of all, we're reminded that Jesus died to show us the love of God. Beginning in verse 6, the passage that that Eric read for us just a moment ago. Beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul describes those who are living apart from faith in Jesus with these words. He says they are powerless, verse 6. They're ungodly, verse 6. They are sinners, verse 8. And then he calls them enemies of God in verse 10. So that tells us that Jesus did not die only for the beautiful and intelligent and successful. He didn't go to the cross only for the prosperous and the charming and the educated. Jesus died for ordinary people, weak, ungodly sinners like me and you. Romans 5 verse 7 says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So day after day after day after day after day, God demonstrates his love for us. That that will never end. God continually, moment by moment, demonstrates, in the present tense, demonstrates his love for us, based on something that has happened in the past, namely, Christ died for us. How do you measure the size of a fire? Well, typically by the number of fire engines that are dispatched to fight it, right? And the number of firefighters. How do you measure the seriousness of a a medical condition? most often by the risk the doctors take in prescribing dangerous antibiotics or surgical procedures. That's how you measure that. How then do we measure the gravity of sin and the incomparable vastness of God's love for us? How do you measure that? By the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ in order to rescue us from sin. That's how. I mean, the the, the father sent his one and only son to make space for us in his family. That's mind-boggling, really. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners and separated and ungodly and enemies of God, Jesus died for us. And this love that God demonstrates on a daily basis, this this unending love is unmerited, undeserved, 
unrestricted, but miraculously also it is the permanent possession of the genuine child of God. Nothing can separate believers, genuine believers, from the love of God. Nothing. And and Paul just hammers home that truth in the latter part of Romans chapter 8. He just hammers it home when he says in verse 38, I'm sure, I'm confident that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor pink slips, nor bad emails, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can he be so sure about that? I mean, how, how could you be so confident about something like that? You know, some, some people that you witness to or talk to or share with, they, they think that you're arrogant or that you're boastful because you say, I know what I know. I know that I'm saved. I know I'm on my way to heaven. I know that Jesus loves me. Well, how do you know? Because Jesus died. That's how you know. He died to show us the love of God. He died to reveal God's love to us. Make sense? Furthermore, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. We turn back now to Romans chapter 5, looking at verses, um, verses 9 and 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more for the second time? How much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, that's a reason to sing and dance and and throw a party and eat cake and rip up mortgages. We shall be saved from God's wrath through Jesus Christ. I think we have no comprehension of what the wrath of God is really like. And the doctrine of the wrath of God has fallen on hard times. Have you noticed? You don't hear much about that anymore. In today's world, any concept of God's wrath upsets modern sentiments. People don't like to hear about God being wrathful. It's too disturbing to think that God might be angry about something or angry at someone. That's just too intolerant, people say. God is not like that, people say. Do you not think that God was angry when some 18-year-old punk shot 19 children and two teachers in an elementary school in southern Texas? Do you not think that God was upset by that? I don't want to take us down a rabbit hole this morning, so let me press on. Dr. J.I. Packer summarizes the wrath of God like this, and I, I think it makes sense. It's very helpful. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, uh, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And you see, Romans 5.10 tells us that we were enemies of God, not not in the sense that we were actively in rebellion toward God. We had active 
hostility or hatred toward God, but rather because of, of our sinfulness and his righteousness, there was this separation. Uh, we didn't have any comprehension of who he is or how he, how he acts and how he lives his life. There, we are sinful. God is holy. There's this separation between us, an alienation between God and, and people. And Jesus died to pay the penalty for that and save us from the wrath of God that might result from it. And so the point of the passage in Romans chapter 5 is that if, if God so loved us when we were his enemies, well, now that he's made provision for us at such infinite cost, much more will he save us from the wrath of God and then see us through to the final goal of our glorious salvation and nothing will be able to separate us from that. That's the point of the passage here. That's the point. Back in the days when everyone used typewriters, about a thousand years ago, um, there was this little thing called whiteout. Remember whiteout? So if you're typing and you make a mistake along the way, you stop and you lift the roller and you take this little solution of white liquid and you dab it on the mistake and then you <laughs> blow on it. And once it's dry, you can type right over the mistake and it's like the mistake never even happened, right? That's whiteout. That's what it does. You could blot out your mistakes with whiteout. I went through many bottles of that stuff. But it also reminds me of David's cry in, in, in Psalm 51, where David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. But God doesn't use white out to deal with our sins. He uses blood. He uses the blood of Jesus to deal with our sins, not something as temporary as whiteout. He uses blood. Look at Revelation 1, verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the death of Jesus, which brings life to us. Our sin is forgiven by the blood of Jesus, and we're saved from the wrath of God by the blood of Jesus. So he died to show us the love of God. He died to save us from the wrath of God. And thirdly, Jesus died to reconcile us to God. Verse 11, Romans 5, verse 11, Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So reconciliation, uh, this word belongs to a group of words that indicates that a change has taken place. So reconciliation means that there's a, a change in the relationship. And in this particular case, it's a change in the relationship between God and people. Reconciliation assumes that there has been a break in the fellowship, a break in the friendship. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, a holy God and sinful people need reconciliation. There needs to be a bridge built between the two. 
But now there's been a change. You see, reconciliation assumes that there's been a breakdown in the fellowship, in the relationship. But now there's been a change from a state of hostility and fragmentation to one of harmony and fellowship. And that's why Paul could write the words of 2 Corinthians 5.17 and verse 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. You see, there's a change. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There's been a change. There's been reconciliation. Has there been a change in your relationship with God yet? Have you come to that place yet in your life where you know, you you sense that separation between yourself and God? Jesus is the only one that can look after that for you. Paul takes great care to say that we have received reconciliation. This is something that we receive from him. It's not something that we can earn or or manufacture or create or purchase. It's something that we receive as a gift. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. We've received reconciliation through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Hallelujah and thanks be to God. We receive it. We're reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. And then just a couple of weeks as we continue in our story in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, we'll actually see this wayward son be reconciled with his father. We've been waiting for that part of the story. (laughs) It's coming. We see the reconciliation, the change in the relationship between this father and his dear son. And of course, that's a beautiful picture. It's an illustration of our own reconciliation with God the Father. You know, he's waiting for us. The Bible says Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He, he looked for us. <laughs> he, he chased us down. He, he pursued us. He dug through all the garbage in our lives and he saved us. Through him, we have now received reconciliation, a change in the relationship between God and people. And I, I, I love the way that John explodes with excitement in 1 John 3, 1, where he says, see what, can you see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God? But that's what we are. Hey, everybody, we're children of God. You see the love the Father has sprinkled? Uh Uh-uh. Lavished. He just pours it on and pours it on and pours it on until you're tired of hearing me say, he pours it on. He just pours it on. He lavishes his great love upon us. Undeserving though we be. We are children of God by faith in the precious blood of the Lamb. We're, we're, we're sons and daughters of the Most High God by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's when death leads to life. When you accept it, receive it, believe it, trust in it. Jesus has done all the work. All you have to do is say, yes, Lord. Would you pray with me, please? 
Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for revealing the depth of your love and compassion and mercy for sinful, broken people like us. Oh, when Paul used those four awful words, powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God, he was writing about me. He was writing about us. And so, Father, we recognize that we have no rightful claim to salvation, no no boast, no hope, no assurance of sins forgiven and righteousness received apart from your finished work, your sovereign grace. So thank you. Today, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness and love. We deserve none of it. So we thank you for the cross. Lord Jesus, would you please keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might see the magnificence of your glory in the full measure of your grace. And this we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's sermon. For more information about our church, visit tgcw.org.